pray, and we're going to go right into the book of Mark. Father God, uh, we just want to ask that our minds, our attention, our hearts now turn to you, to your word. And Lord Jesus, the work of your apostle, your disciple, your child, John Mark, I just pray that we read what he wrote and let the words come off the page and have their impact. God, I pray that our hearts will be quickened, that our awareness will be extended, and that our actions will reflect what we have learned here today. God, we know that you are creator, lover, friend, Lord. I pray that all those things become evident today. And God, that we're awed by your planning, we're awed by your, your schemes in history where you've drawn all people to yourself. So this time is yours and we give it to you, God. In your name we pray, amen. In your Bibles, join me in Mark, the 8th chapter. We're going to pick up in the 11th verse, and we're going to take it through the 21st. So Mark, chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. Let me, let me uh, kind of set the stage for you. Jesus and his apostles have, have made their way north. They've gone deep into Gentile territory to the cities of Tyre and Sidon, people who were, by anybody's imagination, at odds uh, with, with those who were in Galilee and Nazareth and Jerusalem. Jesus has engaged with a Syrophoenician woman, and uh, as a Jewish male rabbi, he has engaged with this, which is about as far away as you could go in their, in their day of people who normally should be in great animosity, but Jesus has engaged in conversation with her, and there's an amazing exchange about, he'll you know, cast the demon out of, save my daughter. And, and Jesus says, but you, you're a, a Syrophoenician woman. Why would I give what's for the Jewish people to you? Why should I give what's holy to dogs? And she says, even the dogs under the table feed from the scraps of the masters. And Jesus says, oh, you get it. You got it. Way to go. He says, because of your faith and your answer, your daughter's healed. Go, go see her. Really beautiful exchange. And to our Western ears, there's some beauty in that. And we get it but there's a lot we missed. So this passage today is going to kind of draw the net and bring them together. It's going to make sense of that feeding of the 5,000 and their families and the feeding of the 4,000 and the leftover baskets here and the leftover baskets there. What is this bread? What's it all mean? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So as we get ready to read, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to be listening for numbers because numbers mean things. I want you to listen for the bread, all the references to bread. And the core theme coming out of this, of course, is that this is everyone's gospel. That's what Jesus is trying to get his followers to grasp. So listen for those themes as we go through the passage this morning. So Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he says, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them and got back into the boat, uh, and they went to the other side of the lake of Galilee. The disciples had forgotten to take bread, and only one loaf was with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The disciples were discussing amongst themselves that they didn't have any bread. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have ears and not, I'm sorry, do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve. They told him, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets and pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And Jesus said to them, 
don't you understand yet? It's like him going, hey, hello, is this getting through? Are you paying attention? Are we tracking? Don't you understand yet? So here we are in the 21st century. Sturgeon Bay Community Church, Door County, Wisconsin, USA, reading that passage, and I say, get it, 12? Get it, 7? Don't you get it? And most people go, no, I, I don't. What do you, what's the point? Our distance socially and, and our distance culturally makes it hard sometimes for us to grasp the message that made so much sense to people in his day. But even the apostles, even this group of people, and listen, they're diverse. They're not getting it. But since the beginning of time, God has been using numbers and metaphors to get his point across to people. And he does it over and over and over again with such regularity that when we see numbers, when we see metaphors, we need to say, I wonder what the message is God's trying to get us to remember. So throughout that, uh, throughout God's um, redemptive history, there have been these numbers. Now, you know more about this than you think. And we're going to go into that in just a minute. So let this slide sit. What I want to do is go back just a touch before we go into this and engage something that is curious, right? Have you ever heard people say the Bible's full of contradictions or it says things that don't make sense and doesn't feel... You've, you ever heard those charges? Okay, let me try it again. Do you breathe air? Okay, okay. And you've lived in the United States long enough to have heard the challenge, oh, the Bible's full of errors, it's full of... And people come to this passage all the time and they say things like, Jesus said, this generation won't be given a sign. And then he turns around and he does miracles. And they're so smart, aren't they? Oh, you got us. I guess there's no Jesus. You're right. Here's what's going on. How many of you, uh, by illustration, how many of you remember blackberries? Not the fruit. The blackberry devices. You remember? Let's raise your hand if you're old like me and you're proud and you remember them and you miss them. Okay. Hey, quit giving up. Come on. Blackberries were amazing. When the blackberries came out, there was just nothing like it. I mean, some other companies were making some also-ran devices, but let's be real. If you were doing business or if you were in ministry and needed to be in communication, it was incredible. They had this thing back then. It was called email. All right? Don't laugh because some of you don't return it to this day. Don't, don't give, give me that. So it was amazing with email because what you could do is, is you could take your stylus on some of them and, and others just you could, you could type it in. The first generations you could use your thumbs and do this. And, and it would send email, which is kind of like a mail, but without having to use a stamp. And it would go straight to people electronically. And then they could respond electronically. And you could put it back in your pocket. And you're like the master communicator. How'd they know? Well, I sent them an email. What? So the BlackBerry is amazing. You could put all of your appointments in it and your phone numbers and lists and all that stuff could go in. You could actually put it on, you could put the little microphone attachment to it and you could talk and about every fifth word it would record and you could have a general idea of your conversation there. It was remarkable. <laughs> Blackberries were incredible. And then in August of 2007, it happened. What happened in August of 2007? The iPhone came out. What? What is this? Oh, my goodness. And it did everything better. But let me ask you something. If you have a first-generation BlackBerry, all right, remember what it was like in 2001. I mean, it was just 
what? But if you get 2002, I forget, it doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. If, if you go back and you take that first generation BlackBerry or even your one gen iPhone, if you could afford to still have one, which you, you've got something, and if you were to take that first one, how would it work today? Would you love to take that device and enter all your information into it and, and put all your data and the current operating system and try to put it all into that first-gen BlackBerry or first-generation iPhone? Um, how would it work today? It's not a trick question. I'm, I'm not kidding. It, would it work well? No, it would be a disaster. When Jesus says generation at this point with the Pharisees, he's not talking about that age group. Let me make it a little more clear. The people who were born uh, in the prior to World War II era in our nation, we recur- refer to them as what generation? Don't say old folks. That's not fair. What do we refer to them as? The greatest generation, the builder generation, those who made it through the Depression and built. They brought America out of those ashes and, and the Tennessee Valley Authority era and all that great stuff. That was that. And then the generation that followed them were the baby boomers. Thanks. And then the generation following that was Gen X. That, that's my generation. So any, any Xers in here? We're a really narrow group. Yeah. We're usually like, yeah, your hand, whatever. I'll raise my But the, the Gen X. And then after that, we have everybody's favorite, the millennial. And we weep for our nation's future. And then, and then, follow, I'm kidding. And then following our millennials, we've got the, the Z generation or the Y or, the, or the whatever we want to call them. I guess they'll be called something as time goes by. But we've got generations. So here's what we do. Because that's our moray, our way of thinking. It's what goes without being said. When we read, Jesus says to the Pharisees, I tell you, I will not give this generation a sign. No sign will be given. Here's what we do. We think, That's the kind of generation he's saying. So he's not going to give a message or a sign to this generation. No, 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 no. Go back to your iPhone BlackBerry illustration. Your way of thinking, your operating system. Cool, huh? Your operating system, Pharisees. I'm not even going to engage you. I'm not going to waste time giving an update to your operating system because it cannot handle the truth. Pharisees in Jesus' day were so obsessed with the law. The Mishnah. They would look at the 613 rules and the hundreds of extra cultural traditions that were piled on top of it. And they couldn't even see who Jesus was. They couldn't hear what he was telling them. They couldn't hear about grace, forgiveness, love. It couldn't get through. And Jesus was saying, I I can't waste my time with you. This is fruitless Until you let go of that old operating system, I cannot download a whole new way of thinking for you. That's what's happening in these verses. And so what's Jesus' response? Much like he told the apostles to do, he, he knocked the dust off his feet. He got back in the boat and went, I'm sorry for you. We're going to go back to where people hear the message. And that's what they did. That ought to cause us some pause. Because what's happened is Jesus went to the Jews, and then he got in the boat, and he went back to the Gentiles. And they responded, and then he got back in the boat, and he went back to the Jews. And what did he run into? Legalism, Pharisaism. you got to fall into our mode. you got to use our operating system. How dare you do things differently? And Jesus just goes, ah, oh, again, how much longer do I have to deal with you? Let's go. And he goes back to where people are hearing the message. 
I think for us as Christians right now in our world today, we need to be cognizant of the fact that not everybody's going to hear about the grace and the love of Jesus. In fact, some religious people are so caught up in religiosity 101 and, and, and Christianity version 1 that they cannot hear the fact that there is truth and love and grace all wrapped up together that God is trying to share with you today. But they're so caught up in, in, in the rigid tradition of their denomination or their way of doing it or what I believe matters or my American version of the gospel that they're unable to hear the truth of the gospel when it's preached and taught. And that's frustrating. I want it to be known of this church right here that we're transforming our community by loving God and others. And I want that love to be exhibited in the fact that we are patiently teaching and showing and living out the Christian faith in front of people so that they come face to face with what it is to be a real Jesus follower. I want that to be who we are. Friends, that's part of what Do Something as a campaign in the fall is going to be about. It's going to put feet to your faith, put action to what we say we believe, and let the love and the service and the grace and the open doors of the gospel be what defines us as a church. Are we on the same page? Okay, now we can get into today's message. Got another, what, two hours to work with here? So, so we'll get started. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Numbers. Tell me what you know about the number three. From the Bible, from culture, from society, what do you know about the number three? Trinity? What else? What was that? What did you say? Call A few? Okay, excellent. Well, three. Jesus rose on the third day. There's three wise men. What else? Well done. Prime. You guys are doing really... You're so much more scholarly than the first service, i got to tell you. We put the brain trust in here. Now I see where they are. How many of you like to sit on that two-legged stool? Isn't that a great one? What's three provide? Stability, balance. Okay. So you understand there's some nuances with three. How about 12? What do you know about 12? What? Apostles? Okay, what else? Tribes of Israel? Months in the year? What did you say? A dozen. Oh, my goodness. And this from an elder. Lord have mercy. I failed. (laughs) What else? Madeline, huh? You're 12 a lot of times when you hit the seventh grade. Well done. Unless you're an outlier and you wait until you're, what, 18 to do it so then you can get A's and everything. What else? 12. Leftover baskets. Yep, yep. Hang on to that. What else? Okay, so seven. What do you know about seven? Seven times to dip in the Jordan. You were thinking about that ahead of time. You came in the first service and thinking about it. Our elders, I tell you, they're killing me right now. Well done. Well done, Dennis. Naaman dipped 12 times in the Jordan there, right? The same place where John the Baptist was baptizing people. Jesus was baptized at that same spot. Well done. What else? Seven. Yep, six days he made it. The seventh day he rest. The seven is the day of the Shabbat, Sabbath. Yep, absolutely. What else? Seven. Yeah, seven deadly sins. Okay, so here's, here's some things you already knew. Let me kind of draw the cord together, and let's see if we can start to grasp what Jesus was trying to get his apostles to grasp while they're in the boat that day. 
three is this number of Trinity. It's the, the Godhead. The three, when you've got three together, there's a great deal of stability. And so no, the number three in the Hebrew context and their way of thinking really represented stability or, or uh, some of the other things it represented was balance. So the cord of three, not easily broken, it, it represented uh, strength. So that's what the three really represented in their culture, in their society. Twelve was Hebrew. Now, in their people, twelve represented the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation. There were twelve tribes, and and there are twelve months of the year, and the complete year is represented by twelve. The Jewish people represented God's complete law, complete uh, way to salvation, and the sacrificial system was provided to them. So they saw themselves as the twelve. Um, and if, if, you're, if you're thinking about all things being complete and wrapped into one, that's what the 12 was to those folks. So the seven represented something different. It had positives, but it also had a kind of a, a nuance that wasn't necessarily Jewish. You see, seven were the number of Canaanite tribes that were in the promised land. And I don't remember all the names of them. I tried to do that this week, but I couldn't remember all the I's and L's and everything. So there were seven nations there among, among Canaan. And so for the Jewish people, seven was the number of Gentiles. So if you have seven, they're part of the twelve, but the twelve encompasses, so the seven are among you. So when Jesus is going and He's doing His ministry by feeding the 5,000 and their families and then feeding the 4,000 Gentiles, and there's 12 baskets left over here and seven baskets left over here, how many of you figure that was an accident? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Total accident. Gina, you with me? Accident? Yeah. No. Come on. Does God make accidents? No. God's very intentional about what He does. If nothing else, He's methodical. So God is trying to demonstrate, do you see my hand in this? Jesus said to the apostles, don't you get it? Don't you see that at every stage I've been trying to teach you, both overtly and covertly and metaphorically and allegorically, I'm trying to let you understand the central message here is that the gospel is for the Jewish people and the Gentiles. It's for all. Remember the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus, that Gentile woman, saying, heal my daughter, release my daughter? And what she say, why should I give what's holy to dogs? Why should I let it fall from the master's table? She got it. Yet his apostles who've been walking around them for over a year are like, oh, we're just hungry. They're not getting it. And it's frustrating Jesus. As frustrated as he is with these Pharisees, he's frustrated with his apostles. You're not getting it. It's kind of like, I painted you such a great picture. Are you not picking up on this? Are you picking up what I'm laying down? Check it out. I got the 12, we got the 7, got the Jews, got the Gentiles. We did the whole walk. You get it? The healing. I replicated. There's mirrored healings all over. Anybody? Any, anybody? Ah. No wonder Jesus was a man of sorrows. How'd you like a class full of that kind of students? But us today, when we go back and we look at this, what I hope we're seeing is God's redemptive plan is so beautifully organized and so beautifully structured and so beautifully delivered that even entry-level students can see it. But the more advanced we get, the more we rightly divide the word of truth, the deeper we get into God's word, we come to it and we continue to be amazed at like, I, I never knew that was there. I never realized God had taken it that deep. And hey, that's only the first point of the sermon. Ready for number two? Oh, <laughs> woo. 
we better be done here. It's the bread. Get it? It's the bread. It's the bread. Jesus has been constructing a metaphor for his followers for quite some time now. So let's back up and start to see this, this bread metaphor start to really come um, into action. So it kind of starts uh, back in this little book called Genesis. In the garden, here's what God provides for Adam and for Eve. Everything you need, it's all there, okay? Talk about a convenience store. Everything you need is growing right here in the garden. Any kind of anything you need to sustain yourself is here. The weather's perfect. There's nothing to bite you or sting you. There's nothing to eat you. Everything is good for you. The weather is perfect. Some scholars say there wasn't even such thing as rain yet. You know? And so all you have to do is just depend on God. He walks with you, and anything you need is just provided for you. I wonder how great the fruit was in that garden when there was no bugs to contaminate it. Can you imagine what it was like? Anybody grow fruit trees at your house? How frustrating it is when you go to pick them and like, ah, oh, worm, ah, oh, blight, ah, oh, ruin, ah, oh, didn't germinate. But in that garden, it was perfect, and it was easy. It was right there. And what's the trade-off? Don't eat of the fruit, the tree, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat the thing that's bad for you. And what do Adam and Eve do? Which, which tree that's bad for me? That's the one they go to. Don't cross this line. What line? Hey, kids, have fun. Play anywhere you want. Don't go in the creek. What creek? And what, what, did, what did Adam and Eve do? They go straight to the, they go straight to the thing they're not supposed to tell. But the thing that was so bad about that is when they did it, God provided a curse, an, an illustrative curse on humanity from that point forward. And what they had to do was they had to work for their bread. Why would God mention bread in the Garden of Eden? Can I ask you an honest, that's just kind of a duh question? What kind of oven did they use? Well, think about it. What's an oven? What's a grain? Before they just ate, now they got to take grain and what do you grind it with? How'd they learn how to make it? You see, what God has done is He said, you're going to work for it, you're going to labor for it, you're going to struggle for it, and it'll provide your needs. Before, Everything you needed simply came through me. But now there's going to be struggle as a part of the, the human experience. For sustenance, you're going to have to work. Before, all you had to do was be in me, and I took care of the rest. Now you're going to have to be in me, but you're going to have to work for substance too, so you constantly are reminded of the fact that you tried to be better and equal to me. Therefore, I'm going to remind you that you're not. Have you ever thought of it that way? You see... As I was reading through the different commentators, the ancient commentators, one of the things that Eusebius and, and Benny and Abedi and some of the others had brought to this was the fact that we forgot what the curse in, in, in the garden was all about. We thought, oh, it's thorns and pain and childbirth and death. Wait, wait, wait. The greater curse is that every single need isn't met anymore, and, and, and we have to work to eat so that we can be productive. And in that scenario, we seem to open our minds now that we've provided for ourselves to what God may be wanting to show. But we did that to ourselves. Are you seeing this curse, this bigger curse? If everything was provided by God and we always knew it, that's what we would always depend on is God. We cursed ourselves. Talk about the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we've got to work for food, and what happens is ultimately the work and the resources become an ultimate thing to us, and we figure, I've provided for myself. I've taken care of it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a self-made, ooh, does that kind of settle in on you? 
Am I the only one who gets guilty of that? So this bread metaphor goes way back to the garden, but it, but it continues to emerge. Through Scripture, we see that when the, when the Hebrew people uh, fall into famine, there's not enough grain to make bread, they go to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, his family is provided for by a son who was taken captive and placed in Egypt and given a vision. And as Joseph built up the silos and saved the grains to prepare for a famine that would come, his family eventually comes and they end up uh, in Egypt being provided for by the vision God gave for the grain which makes the bread which provides for the people. Yet over time, the Hebrew people, rather than remembering where they belonged and going back where they came from to the promised land, what did they do? <laughs> they became dependent on the Hebrew, or to the Egyptian people. Now, what eventually does that dependency on things other than God lead to? Wait for it, wait for it. What happens when we depend on something other than God to provide for us? What's it eventually lead, what's it eventually lead to? Oh, wait a minute. It's hard to say, isn't it? Because we're Americans and we really don't like this. What is it when we become dependent on something other than God for all of our needs? And I want we call that slavery. You are a slave to something. Ouch. See where the bread metaphor continues to play in here? You see where you get your sustenance, your provision? Let it keep going. The Hebrew people find themselves in the desert. And they're longing for the leeks and garlics of Egypt because they don't have their needs met. What does God provide for them? But manna, which means what is it, bread? And so they're, they're making this stuff, which, which Scripture just defines for us, and it's the bread that they eat, and it's provided for them. And it comes every single morning it's provided, right? Are you allowed to store it up and hang on to it for tomorrow? No, it rots, goes to worm. And so you can't save it. And, and next day God provides for it again. They're in the desert for 40 years, and they start to take it for granted. And as soon as they cross into the promised land, they go out there for their, their morning manna, and it's not there anymore. What? God's abandoned us. Wait, who's abandoned you? You've been taking advantage of this and, for, and, and, and just taking it for granted for 40 years. Now, all of a sudden, God's abandoned you? And then we get to communion. Hmm. But before that, before there's communion, there's a time in the desert where Satan is trying to tempt Jesus, and he tells him to turn the stones to bread. In other words, provide for yourself. Provide all the sustenance that you need. I'll take care of the rest. I got all this other stuff. I'll make the people come and worship you. You just take care of your needs. Don't provide for them. I'll provide for them. Just depend on your own divinity. You don't need to be human. Just depend on your divinity. Satan's using the sufficiency of God as a tool against God. He fails, of course. But then eventually we get to communion and, and Jesus' way of taking and breaking the bread and saying, this is my body given for you. This bread thing goes all the way through it. In the midst of our Lord's prayer, the model prayer that Jesus gave to us, He says, give us this day our daily bread. So here's bread again. R.C. Sproul, one of today's greatest theologians, had this to say. It's interesting to me that in the language of Western culture, we sometimes speak to one partner in a, in a marriage as the breadwinner, okay? Even in, in our slang, we use the term, uh, the word bread as a synonym for money. Bread remains, at least in our language, as a powerful symbol of the rudimentary basis of provision for our needs. What's Dr. Sproul cut right to the heart of? What bread represents to Jesus, to the apostles, and in God's redemptive history. It's the bread 
representing provision for our needs. Jesus says, Surely I tell you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives you or gives life to the world. And they say, Sir, give us this bread always. What's the bread? You see, they get it. Illustration to illustration, metaphor to metaphor. We Westerners read it, we just go, Well, that's a cool story. He fed the 5,000. That's the miracle. No! The miracle is the message, and it's how many are left over and what that should draw your attention to. The crowd was hungry. They had been there for three days. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating. And when the Jewish crowd is fed, there's 5,000 men and their families, which should be about 12,000 people. And how many, how many are left over? Twelve baskets, one for each tribe of Israel and each apostle following Jesus. Dim-witted as they seem to be from our perspective, each one of them has a basket to wrestle with. (laughs) What's Jesus saying? You have a responsibility to take this provision, the provision of the gospel, and take it to the people of Israel. And then he does it again for the Gentiles. Now there's only 4,000 people in total. And, and what's left over but seven baskets. And he puts them in front of his apostles. apostles. He goes, hey, now you're responsible to take the fullness of God's message, the bread, the provision of life, and share it with the Gentile people who are among you. Seven, three, twelve, fullness, completeness, gospel, provision, my message for all people. That's why Jesus is in the boat going, don't you get it? This is the message. It's for all people. So when we go over here and we deal with these Pharisees and their version one, it's incredibly frustrating that they're unable to download the truth, the complete meaning, when all the elements have been there all along. That's what's happening at this moment. That's the beauty of this message. And I'm afraid we miss it. I'm afraid we get caught up in this idea that, that Christianity is only for the good people. Or God's love and grace is only for those who are really, really good as Christians and follow all the rules. God's grace is for all people who will come and surrender their heart and soul to Him wherever they are. And some people who come to the gospel are going to encounter the Pharisees. They're going to encounter the legalism of people who want to say, well, now that you want to come, you're welcome to come to our church as long as you follow these 4011 rules the way we do it, and then you're always welcome. Our doors are always open as long as you look and act and, pray and do things like us. But don't come in if you're broken. I mean, those of you people struggling with your, your sexual identity or your alcoholism or, or your bad attitude or what are you wearing, I mean, you, you can't come here till you get that taken care of. And that's how we act as Christians, like the Pharisees. We're still operating in version one. And Jesus is saying, for all people, come, you who are weary, who need rest, who are broken, who are hurting, blessed are those who. You see, Jesus' call is to all. And that's exactly what our church needs to be, too. Not just the good people. Isn't it funny that in Jesus' day, the church was largely composed of the poor, with notable examples of the wealthy who were helping take care of. 
And, and in today's church, it seems the church is largely composed of the middle-class white folks uh, who, who make up the majority population of American evangelicalism, where outside of that, you see the, the massive masses of people who are not hearing the true gospel. They're hearing uh, broken-down versions of it all over the place. Does it seem to you strange that somehow we, we've shifted around? What we did is we invited the Pharisaism and the I'll-make-my-own-bread back into the church. And that wasn't Jesus' message. We've missed it. And I think today Jesus looks at our American church and he goes, don't you get it? Don't you get it? Your great job, your middle class lifestyle, your nation of safety and security, this is a vapor. This isn't, isn't going to give you ultimate meaning and security. That's not what's going to make you safe. Life is going to come to an end one day, and you're going to enter into the presence of the Lord, and you're going to stand, and, and, and essentially, metaphorically, why should I let you into heaven? Why should I let you into this afterlife? And we're going to go, well, I was pretty good. I did really good stuff. I provided all my needs. And he's going to go, no, no, no. I provide your needs. I'm your sufficiency. I'm what mattered. You don't know how things work here. The, this is, this is version 12.0, and you're trying to do version 2.0. You can't communicate in this environment. Depart from me. I, I never knew you. Foolish, foolish child. That's a scary thought. Here's a beautiful thought. Every time Jesus got together with people, he reminded them that he's the bread. Every meal they ate, he would take it, he would break the bread, and he would bless it, and he would hand it out. Showing them symbolically every time, I got you. I'll provide for you. But we're hungry. We're in the boat without bread. Here's the lesson, guys. I'll provide for you. You're depending on this leavened bread of the Pharisees and Herod. I'll provide for you. Stop this thing where you think you've got to control it all. I'm your sufficiency. That's the message. Isn't that a hard message for us Westerners? Isn't that hard? We want to be self-made women and men. We want to be people who can control all the details. We'll pick what church we go to and what service we go to. Now I'm happy. I'll pick the type of music and what that preacher dresses like or talks like. You know, I'll pick that. And God said, no, no, no. You're going to grow where I plant you. Okay? You're supposed to go here and use the gifts and talents and abilities I've given you to make this church and this place blossom where you are in your life group. Even if the people in your life group are difficult for you to get along with, they're there for you to grow with. And in that thing, I'll provide your needs. You grow here. All this is part of that greater message. And listen, a thousand other little nuances that we couldn't possibly get into right now. But what I think is neat is in Jesus' um, last act there amongst his apostles, he's going to use bread in a way that's even more remarkable. In the communion service, in that last supper, now let, let's set the stage for everybody. It's at John Mark's house, right? Uh, John Mark's growing up without a dad. His mom's a wealthy woman. It's their house. Peter has seen John Mark and connected with John Mark, and that's where the Lord's Supper is going to be held. At this first uh, Lord's Supper, this, 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 this uh, Passover meal, Jesus is going to take the bread and say, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. John Mark is watching from the sidelines, and the apostles are doing what they've done a hundred times, but this time it's a little different. Jesus still took the bread and blessed it and gave it, 
and they see the, the, the image that he's the one providing bread. He takes the cup of redemption there at the end of the meal, and he takes that particular cup, and he said, this is my blood, which is offered to, is shed for you. This do in remembrance of me. And in that moment, there's two more metaphors that are provided to his church. And to this day, when we gather as Christians, so often, what do we do? But we take the bread and the wine, and we remember Christ's death until he comes. And we're going to do that now. Here's what I hope today. I hope today is, as the music plays and as the elements, and by the way, the elements are coming around, as they're being passed, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that little bread and that little cup of juice, and I want you to think about how great Jesus' plan was, that he put something tactile in your hands. Thank you, buddy. So that 2,000 years later, you still get to experience that metaphor. And remember that he's the sufficiency and he's the sacrifice through which salvation comes and peace with God is attained. One more thing. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians. I want you to hear this before we pray. It goes like this. For I've received from the Lord, which I also passed on to you, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink the cup. To those Hebrews, numbers weren't the only things that meant something special. Passover every year was preceded by a week of what we kind of refer to as Lent in some ways today, and not, not well, but that was a time to clean out the house, get everything out, clean under everything, spring cleaning. They would go and get every bit of dust out of the house. They would take the yeast and get it away from the house, and their bread that week was made with no yeast. And it was symbolic for them to think about purifying their hearts and their behaviors, doing some spring cleaning in your consciousness, in your spiritual life, forgiving some forgiveness that need to happen, asking for, for some forgiveness, for forgiveness that you needed to ask for, getting some sins taken care of, doing business with God. So by the time you came to Passover, the bread was made with no leaven. The leaven represented sin or contamination. That Passover biscuit, the, the matzah, had no leaven. It wasn't soft and squishy. It was hard. But it would last. That bread, that special bread, is what Jesus held up at the Lord's Supper that first time. And as he said, when he said, this is my body which is broken for you, it's sinless. He's done business with God. He's without sin. When we take the Lord's Supper, our lives, our hearts, should come to a point where we are confessing sin, getting it out, doing some business with God before we take the provision of God for salvation and eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? It's no accident. Sadly, in, in, in Christian history, 
beginning at Nicaea and very soon after people began to teach the lie that somehow you're eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus literally and that somehow because you did that you'd take into you enough Jesus that when you went to heaven you got Jesus in you so you can go what a sad misrepresentation of a beautiful message to remember God is all sufficient our lifestyle our behavior should represent people who are transformed and be reminded that you join with billions of other people who've made that decision to follow Jesus and accept the sufficiency of Christ in their world and in ours. That's where communion really comes down. And that's a much bigger message than eating Jesus. That's a much bigger message than I can do this. The message is only Christ can do this. And we reflect on Him at a moment like this. So let me ask you to bow your heads, to close your eyes. Let's just get before our God for a minute. Lord, at this moment as we enter into this time of communion, I just pray that the real meaning of that bread permeates our value system. God, I pray the sufficiency that you, the provision of salvation and eternal life that you provided is symbolized by that bread. Your body, God, you came sinless and lived amongst us. God on earth, the Son of Man, 100% God, 100% man. What a beautiful mystery. And the Lord, in that you provided the opportunity for a relationship and peace with God, fully sufficient forgiveness and salvation. And God, our behavior should represent it. So Lord, let that be in the front of our minds as we take the bread. Amen. As the body of Jesus was sinless, perfectly sufficient for you and your salvation. Do this in remembrance of Him. The wine, the cup of redemption at the end of that meal represented peace and redemption of God's people. Drawing them to Himself, making a way and bringing His people home to Himself. He had done it there in the desert and provided the way. And through Jesus, he provided the way to the end of the sacrificial system, the end of the law, and the beginning of grace. The church through which we can be at peace with God because of what Jesus did for us. To the Jews, the wine representing blood represented our motivations, our action, and the very life that coursed through our, our veins. Because, see, they understood without blood there is no life. They understood that blood pumps through the heart, so they figured that the heart was the center of our intentions and our motives and our reasons and our values. And so for them, the wine, the cup of redemption meant that our values, the very life that goes through us, is because of Jesus. And He defines them all. Because life is through His sacrifice. And salvation is through His atoning blood. And because the communion cup is there to remind us that that sacrifice extends to all who will accept Him as Savior and Lord, let us do this in remembrance.